I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. Joining me from Cork is Dr Aoife Vrenach. Aoife, are you reading anything interesting at the moment? I'm reading a book called Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons and it was first published in 1932. I'm reading it to try and work out exactly why it was banned and just how dirty it was. We'll find out a little bit more about that later on. But first... In normal circumstances, I and many others would all be looking forward to descending on Galway for Kurch at the moment. However, we will get to attend virtually this year. It's also thanks to the joys of the internet that I get to speak with one of this year's star turns, although he won't thank me for calling him that. The author of Grief is the Thing with Feathers and Lanny Max Porter. Welcome to the book show. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, Not at all. Tell me about uh, next week and about Kurch and about what you're going to be doing there. Uh, I'm going to be extremely sad not to be in Galway, which would have been the main reason for agreeing to the (laughs) festival, Um, because it's always the one I wanted to be invited to. And when I was a publisher, it was the one I was most jealous when my authors went and the stories they used to tell when they came back. Um, Also, I'm very fond of Galway and I've got friends there, so I'm sad. You know, it's just a reminder of the state we're in. But as you say, the miracle of technology that allows me to go there and talk to Sarah Baum, uh, which I'm thrilled about. She's a writer I greatly admire. And we're having a proper writer's chat. We're going to talk about craft and form and style and technique and all this, all this nerdy business. The new book is out as well, The Death of Francis Bacon. I loved it. I read it twice. By, by writing it and writing about art and about painting and about Bacon's internal thoughts in the last days of his life, you didn't really make things easy on yourself, did you? No, and probably not on the reader either. (laughs) But these aren't easy times, and literature shouldn't be easy, necessarily. It's great when it is, but it's great when it isn't. So what I wanted to do was set myself a kind of uh, emotional challenge that was tied to a technical challenge. You know, one is how to write about painting. uh, One is how to write about dying. um, One is how to write about, you know, the relationship between written ideas and and visual things and ways of seeing. So, yeah, I, I sort of took it like a... Friends of mine that go to the gym and do cross training. I'm like, yeah, I did that. I did that in lockdown. I did like the literary equivalent of CrossFit. <laughs> That's how I think of it. Because it is a little bit different, uh, putting it mildly, to, to, to the first two books. Uh, how did people react to that? Um, my books have all been different enough that people, uh, I mean, I'm grateful for this. They'll, they'll go where I take them, I think. There is a degree of hostility, particularly with English readers, to not knowing what Bacon paintings I'm talking about or to answering the question of whether they're made up, whether I've invented them, um, to the lack of biographical detail in the book itself, you know, not, not telling people what they need to know about whether this is real or made up or my Bacon or me wearing a Bacon mask or Bacon wearing a Bacon mask, which is something I think he, he did better than a lot of people when they're talking about their own work. I think Bacon performed versions of himself. So I think um, some readers struggle with that. Other readers loved it, and I think, um, you know, you can't please all the people all the time, but what, what I'm most grateful for is people try. People get get stuck in, get a bit lost. Um, my work is is often about, you know, Lanny was about novels, um, and Grief is the Thing with Feathers was sort of about poetic obsession. So this one was sort of about what do you do with someone like Bacon and how do you write well about them? And a lot, a lot of readers have really gone there with me, yourself included. As you say, you, don't, you might need to read it twice. It's only short. Um, I'm grateful for that. Um, but it requires some thinking about what what's um, opaque, um, what's representational, you know, what's, what is biographical and what isn't. 
Um, and I think those things are, you know, that's why I read books. I want to be asked these questions. So do you find reading therapeutic for you at this stage? Yes. I'm not reading very much and it's making me unhappy not to be reading. You know, sometimes you're out of sync with reading. And I think that when you're not reading, you have to ask yourself, why not? And I think what it is at the moment is that I had too much noise in my head. Lockdown resulted in a kind of locked-in-ness in my own head. I, I heard the voices more loudly than usual. I lay awake at night sort of skittering around. And so what I decided to do, particularly while I'm writing a new novel, which I am at the moment, is just to take out some of those voices, you know, give myself a tiny bit more quiet um, after the kind of noise of this hyper-stressed time. To finish, you're a writer, you have been an editor, you've been a bookseller, and this is the week in which bookshops reopen in uh, England and Wales. What sort of state is the world of books in at the minute, as far as you can see? A state of change, and I think that's good because we are people who are concerned with change. Um, So particularly in the UK, I think the landscape of British publishing is changing, and rightly so, because it was outdated and systemically uh, unjust. Uh, but right now, I'd say the best thing is, as you say, with bookshops opening, that people want to go and browse again. The, the great resistance to algorithmic thinking is, is the browsing experience. So, so, yeah, I think it's great. People go out, find a book, buy the wrong book, buy two books, you know, steal a book if needs be. <laughs> I'm excited about it. I miss browsing almost like it's a missing limb. It's been lovely talking to you as always, Max Especially Porter. Secondhand bookshops, right? Oh, don't get me started on secondhand bookshops and the smell of secondhand bookshops. I want to go and buy some book that I absolutely don't need on like Greek maps of the 17th century or something, you know? A, yeah, a smelly old yellow book I don't need. I'd like to leave it sitting there for about three years and then rediscover it on one of my own shelves at home. Exactly. Max Porter, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. The Death of Francis Bacon by Max Porter is out now on Faber and Faber. Max will be taking part in an online discussion next Tuesday, that's the 20th of April, with Sarah Baum as part of Courch Presents Conversations on Craft. For more information, you can check out courch.ie. There have been over 12,000 books banned in Ireland over the decades. It's too many to read, that's for sure, but it hasn't deterred Dr Aoife Vrenach from hunting for the filthy, the sweary and the downright indecent and then making a podcast out of it. You might be familiar with it. It's called Censored. Aoife joins me now. Maybe just to start, explain the podcast a little bit. The podcast is trying to understand the blacklist created by the Irish censors. So from 1930... The Irish state banned lots of books, periodicals, newspapers, non-fiction titles, and they created this huge blacklist that includes all the great literary names of the 20th century, but also a lot of trashy novels that we don't talk about anymore. And I'm trying to read them, first of all, to have a laugh, and secondly, to discuss how the words indecent or obscene came to be used in this system and what actually was defined as filth by censors from the 1930s all the way through to the 1980s, actually. Because it is the, the interesting bit is, is that there's no paper trail for any of these. There's, there's nothing really written down. How did it work in, in terms of censors? Did they meet together in, in one location? Yes, there were five members of the board and they were supposed to meet to discuss each banning decision. Now, we know that they didn't have to read each book completely, but they did read them to a certain extent, or at least they certainly read them for the rude bits. 
because they would receive submissions with rude bits highlighted and, you know, pointing out that page 50 was really full of muck. So they would read at least page 50. We know that much. It must have been immensely harrowing for them as a job. Uh, we spoke recently here on the programme about how rereading a book, knowing about a plot twist, it changes your reading experience. Uh, have you reread any of these books looking for clues as to, as to why they were banned? And what was that like? Yes, the current book that I'm reading, Cold Comfort Farm, is one of my own personal favourites. It's something I've read many, many times. I couldn't count how many times I've read it. But when I put on my censorship spectacles and tried to read like a censor, I did find that it changed the book entirely. I thought, "Mm, maybe it is actually a little bit filthy. There's a surprising amount of lascivious and leering and a lot of smut. I really like the idea of your censorship bingo sheet. Uh, Tell me about that. Yes, that's the most important thing that I use to read the books. I keep it next to me when I'm going through a book and it's 25 squares of things that I think the censors didn't like. So it includes contraception, abortion, divorce, uh, assault, crime, anything to do with queer content, dangerous immorality, dirty pictures and vice. So I think I can expand on that and that's how I created the censorship bingo card. So I go through that at the end of every episode to work out exactly what appeared in the book that they would have underlined and said, no, forbidden. And, and you, you go through all of these in the individual episodes of the podcast. I'm almost as interested, though, in the ones that people don't necessarily know, because you, you've had a go at some of the slightly murkier waters of pulp fiction, for instance. The censors didn't like that at all, did they? Yes, the censors had a real bee in their bonnet about pulp fiction. And this was something I wasn't aware of because I conceptualised censorship as attacking high art, but they were just as interested in stopping people reading what we would call trash. There's one that I read by a man called Ori Hitt called Pleasure Ground. And Hitt wrote like two or three books a year for cash. He was a commercial writer and he just churned them out for about 20 years. His books are usually featuring these big brawny men They're quite sexually charismatic, but not very clever. And they're struggling with their place in in the world. They tend to be working class men trying to earn a living and trying to avoid the temptations of bad women. I thought it was a good book. It's not my type. It's not something that I would rush out to read, but it's certainly not bad. It's not poorly written. And I just think that these things were subversive because... They could show you this different side of American life and maybe give people here ideas about how working class men and women could interact with each other. And how times change. You describing that man almost makes me think of Connell in Normal People Going to Trinity. Uh, They banned Jackie (laughs) Collins as well, didn't they? Quite a lot of her. Yes, she was banned in the early 70s for her books, The Stud and The World is Full of Married Men. In 1967, about, you know, 5,000 books were immediately released from censorship prison. And we have sort of assumed that they stopped banning things. But that's not true. They they did keep going into the early 70s, really. Um, And Jackie Collins was one of those who got caught up in it. 
unjustly, I would say, because it's not rude. It's very silly. And in fact, it's not really a good read either. I was very disappointed. You have read very, very broadly for this project and for the podcast. Was there anything that was just awful that you came across? Yes, I was so disappointed and nearly upset by Anise Nin's A Spy in the House of Love. Nin has this great reputation of being a female erotica writer and breaking boundaries and being really interesting and challenging. And I thought it was so bad. It was turgid and overwrought and meandering and self-indulgent and narcissistic and full of terrible metaphors. The worst, the worst line, the bit that I had to read out and I had to record it a number of times because I kept laughing. She talked about um, someone impaling on a sensual mast and it was just, just the worst thing I've ever read. It was awful. For me, maybe the most interesting part of this whole story when I was reading up on it is that there are books and publications that are still banned today, technically, in 2021, despite the fact that, and I, I went and had a, a look at the list, which people can find if they, if they want to online, a lot of them are about publications that don't exist anymore. Some of these bands go back as far as uh, the 1930s. Maybe tell us a little bit about what's still banned. Yes, a lot of the true crime literature and periodicals from the 30s is still on the list. And these would be things like true detective stories. And that was the beginning of the true crime popular genre, really. So this was banned. This was illegal and technically remains illegal. Although, of course, most of these magazines are now extinct. They're museum pieces. So that list is a strange relic of our past obsession with smut and filth and dirty language. I did note as well that uh, amongst the titles that are still banned is How to Drive Your Man Wild in Bed. Yes, apparently that is still banned. Strangely, there is no title called How to Drive Your Woman Mad in Bed, so I presume it's still legal to do that. It's been brilliant talking to you, Dr Aoife Vernach. Thanks very much for talking to us here on The Book Show. Thanks, Rick. You can find The Censored Podcast on Acast or wherever you find your podcasts. And the website is censored.ie. Now it's time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here's Rachel Noley to tell us about the legendary Charlie Burns Book Club in Galway City. We meet in the midst of the many thousands of books that line the shelves of the much-loved and award-winning bookshop in Galway City. The atmospheric surroundings provide inspiration and the opportunity to get lost in books together for an hour each month. We are a group of men and women aged 20-something to 70-something of many nationalities and part of a wide community of readers. Ours is a public book club where everyone is welcome. We meet in a public space where the group expands and contracts as suits people and not everyone reads the book. The unpredictable nature of the group provides interesting debate. Lockdown has gifted us more time for reading and exploring new authors and styles of writing, such as graphic novels, poetry, plays, and our Zoom meetings allow us to have authors join us for the discussion. This gives us greater respect for the work that goes into a book and the doubts that writers face. So far, we have had the company of writers Kevin Barry, Dura Griefa and Elaine Feeney. 
We are delighted to be with you this evening to discuss Joseph O'Connor's Shadow Play. I'm feeling jealous already. Here's Dave Quinlan from Galway with a brief scene setter. Shadow Play is a historical novel reimagining the life of Irish writer Bram Stoker. Set in Victorian London, it revolves around his complicated relationships with his wife Florence and the actors Henry Irving and Ellen Terry and the experiences that influenced the creation of his gothic horror novel Dracula. I'm joined now by the author of Shadow Play, Joseph O'Connor. You're very welcome to the book show. It's lovely to be with you, uh, Rick, and um, lovely to be involved in uh, Charlie Burns' book club. I wish we were there in Galway and hope to be again before too long. Uh, As do I. Uh, It's fair to say that this book must have been read or is being read by a high proportion of the nation's book clubs. Uh, are Are you ever conscious of that? Yes, I am, because people write to me and they have questions and comments about the book. I think the whole book club phenomenon is a great thing. I don't remember that when I was a kid or when I was a young writer starting out. You know, there's a great sense of writing taking place in isolation. But uh, there's so many book clubs and literary festivals and different ways in which people are experiencing books now. And it's great. I mean, that said, I guess there's also no substitute for the one to one relationship with the book but still to be able to read in a group I think it provides fantastic kind of uh, schedule and feedback and context so yeah I'm all in favour. Well it's it's why we're here uh, at the moment we'll take the first question from the Charlie Burns book club here is the wonderfully named Anais Ambo. In your novel you capture the story in letters diary entries interviews first and third person prose and shifting timelines. Was this the initial structure or did it evolve with your characters? Um, Well, thanks, Denise, for that lovely question. The answer is twofold, I suppose. One is that uh, from the time of my novel Star of the Sea, which is 18 or 20 years old now, I began experimenting with that kind of um, structure and texture uh, by which a novel would be told by a number of people uh, in a number of time zones. And I think it really came from my experience as a reader of just being easily bored. I mean, I still, I, I, you know, unless it is Jane Austen, a long novel told in one voice, I find it very easy to switch off from. So I'm always looking for the texture and the polyphony, the group way of of telling the story of a novel. And then I suppose in another way with this book, with Shadowplay, it was a way of paying tribute to Dracula because Dracula, as people who will have read it, know one of the interesting things about it is that it it's told in a variety of registers. There are transcripts from sound recordings, uh, there are letters, and there's all different kinds of uses of language. So it was really for those two reasons. And it was in my mind right from the start, yeah, that Shadowplay would be told by by a number of voices and in a number of ways. Question two is a good one, and it comes from Joe Maguire. How much manipulation of the facts can an author make when using actual people in a novel without it becoming problematic? For example, I was thrown by the manipulation of Bram's and Florence's respective ages. Can you explain why it was done? Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. Thanks very much for that. That's obviously something that I've had to wrestle with, you know, a fair bit uh, over the years as the author of novels that that engage with factual stories sometimes and with real people. Manipulation, I think, is quite a strong word. I wouldn't like to manipulate. And I do think it's very important that you say what you're doing so and that you're 
come clean about that. So, for example, in the acknowledgements of shadow play, it's made very clear that, while you know, it's based on real events, but it's a work of fiction. Liberties have been taken with facts and characterizations and with chronologies. And I think once you do that, then you have a license to change things up a bit. I mean, I think particularly when you're writing about a writer, I mean, I certainly felt that when I was writing about John Singh in Ghostlight, he was somebody who quite often, I mean, there's documentary evidence that he sometimes took the spark of real life and found it into a fiction. Um, we know that Stoker did the same thing, that he was an extensive researcher. We even know because of the Victorian enthusiasm for for measurement and statistics, what books Stoker read while he was uh, researching Dracula. Indeed, we know what books in Marsh's library here in Dublin uh, he read. So when you're writing about uh, an imaginative artist who sometimes did this himself, I think you have a license to to shape things a bit. As I say, once you make clear that that's what you're doing. The third question from Charlie Burns' book club in Galway comes from Leona Duff. Famously, the reason Dracula is known at all is because of the copyright case of Prana film over Nosferatu by Florence herself, which then led to the Bela Lugosi Broadway performance and the rest is history. Considering the Stoker estate is still hot on the topic of copyright and how elements of copyright are explored in shadow play, I am curious to know your personal thoughts on the topic and within the Stoker context. Well, my first and thanks very much uh, for the question. My personal thoughts are that all published authors owe Florence Balcom a great deal for the role that she played in establishing the rules of copyright. And I find it fascinating in historical terms and in terms of putting the novel together that um, before the era of Stoker, you couldn't copyright a novel. I mean, it's a fascinating idea that you publish a novel and anyone in America could publish it. Uh, anyone in Germany could publish it and not pay you or your family any royalties. And I suppose it's the running kind of theme of the imperfect but interesting to write about marriage between Florence and Bram. One of the rows they have, you know, every couple, loving couples, but there's an ongoing row. It's whether, you know, it's who brings the bins out, whatever it is. In the case of Mr. and Mrs. Stoker, it's why won't you try to copyright your novel? And um, because the, the one way to do it was that if the novel was performed on stage, it would acquire the copyright protections that a stage play had. Uh, so finally, and this is true, I mean, one one Monday or Tuesday morning at the Lyceum Theatre in London, where, where Bram worked as Henry Irving's uh, manager, there was the one and only, at that time, copyright performance of Dracula. Early in the morning, the scene painters were there, the cleaning ladies were there, nobody paid much attention, but that was a performance that changed the world and the rules of copyright. And if I could go back in the time machine, and um, how I would love to have been in that theatre just off the Strand in London on, the, on that rainy morning in 1897. Yeah, and that's something I knew almost nothing about prior to, to reading Shadowplay. Uh, the final question from Galway is asked by Betty Atwood. The novel examines the liminal role of the artist, with Irving describing the artist's path as arduous and of being between the living and the dead. The idea of the artist as alienated from mainstream societal values is an intriguing theme throughout the novel. What is your vision for the role of the artist? 
Thanks very much for that question. Obviously, that's something that I had to think about a lot when I was putting together these characters. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about Henry Irving and Bram Stoker and Alan Terry is that in some ways they're very artistic. I mean, they're really um, creative. They're full of um, creative ideas for how to present their stories. But in another way, and this is one of the things that I find pleasing about them, um, they also want to sell something. I mean, Irving's a man of the theatre. He wants spectacle. He wants to sell tickets. He wants people to come along. Stoker wanted the same thing. I mean, all his life, he wanted to have a bestseller. I mean, it's one of the lovely ironies about him. He kept going and going and going. And then finally, the huge bestseller that he had, the iconic book that he wrote, didn't become a success until after he died. So their lack, their lack of sort of complete artistic purity made them lovely to write about because they were they were creative and artistic, but they were also ambitious. And so they had to deal with the slings and arrows, you know, the shows that didn't work out and the novels that didn't sell and the performances that didn't work. And I found just their courage and their patience and their forbearance in keeping going um, just so inspiring. And, and the context for this, this extraordinary love that they have for each other, the three of them, which is sometimes so tempestuous and even spiteful, but, but also so, so deep and affectionate. And they were very funny, fond of each other. So to me, it's, it's a love story more really than, than a story about what it is to be an artist. They've been absolutely fantastic questions this week. And Joseph, thanks for, for answering those. I have to ask you about the next uh, one along. Where are you at the coalface on the new novel? I've just finished draft three and I would usually do six or seven drafts. It's a novel called My Father's House at the moment. That's what it's called. It's about Hugh O'Flaherty, great man, who's an Irish priest in the Vatican during World War II and against his orders and against the wishes of the Irish government and the papacy and lots and lots of other people uh, at great um, risk to his own life. He and a small group of friends saved uh, thousands of uh, of escaped Allied prisoners and, and Jews. Uh, he's a fascinating man. So, yeah, once a day for a couple of hours, I go to Rome uh, in the 1940s, Rick. So, uh it could be worse. It's helped me get through the lockdown. Yeah, that's one of the more exotic travel locations I've heard people talk about as far as that goes. Joseph O'Connor, as always, thanks a million for coming on The Book Show. A great pleasure, Rick. Thanks very much. See you soon, I hope. Shadow Play is published by Vintage. Thanks to Joseph O'Connor and to the Charlie Burns Book Club for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. I'll talk to you again next week or this coming Thursday, the 22nd at 5 o'clock, where I'm going to be talking to the Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Thang Nguyen, author of The Committed as part of this year's Courch Festival. More details from the Courch website. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop or library for any of the books featured on the programme.